0: Now let's open up the word of God together for today's message. Well, good morning, guys. I was trying to figure out if I did something wrong already. And I just I just got up here. Oh, okay. Whew! You had me you had me sweating. Well, we are in our verse-by-verse study of the gospel of, of Mark. If you would please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 we're going to be looking at verses 30 through 41 and as we go through the gospel of mark here verse by verse our prayers that you would experience god day by day as you turn there let me review from last sunday the holy spirit of almighty god he he taught us about faith he taught us about unbelief and prayer and unfortunately we saw the tragic consequences of what happens when People try to do the Lord's work in and among themselves, and they become so busy that they forget to pray. And that's what the apostles did last Sunday. We also discussed Mark chapter 9, verse 23, at great length. Jesus says in verse 23, He says, Everything is possible for the one who believes. And we say, Everything, Jesus? Like everything? absolutely everything. So we examined this verse, and we did discuss how the prosperity preachers of today, they pull it from this narrative, they pull it out of context, and they use it as a blanket statement for all who are sick or who want to become wealthy. Not a good thing to do. Um, If you haven't listened to that message, it is on the website. Um, We also discussed a couple other key points from last week. Well, this one does have to do with the prosperity stuff. All things can be done for the one who has faith, but your faith must submit to the will of God. And the will of God is found in the word of God. So submitting your prayer life to God's will is a part of spiritual maturity. God, he grows us up that way. God wants us to teach not only to pray for ourselves but to pray for things that he has predetermined for you and predestined for you. And not just for you, but he's talking about the kingdom of God here on earth. Uh, it's not our kingdom. It's his kingdom. Practically, we do this by praying God's word out loud back to him. Um, if, you, if you're if you not familiar with that, I would just point you to the Psalms to pray God's word out loud. When you read God's word out loud, you hear his voice and uh, To include that in your your devotional time. We also talked about how nobody can create faith in and among themselves. Faith is a gift and we can always, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, we always have room for a little bit more faith or a lot more faith. We discussed people who have true faith are very aware of how deficient their faith is. And then, also, we discussed what you do with your imperfect faith is crucial. And then, lastly, the prayer, how prayer is the action side of faith. Prayer requires humility. Proud people, proud churches don't pray. Um, and that is all, once again, that's all from last week. It does set us up well for this week, for today's narrative. Now, the next two weeks are going to be a little bit interesting because as you read through this stuff, at first glance, these stories, they look unrelated. But you're going to see several themes here that are weaved into the biblical text. We're going to see pride today. We're going to see lots of pride. We're going to see humility, and we're going to see suffering. So that sets the stage for today today. And at this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus is now done with public ministry. He is now on the way to Jerusalem. His, uh, his public ministry is, uh, is over, and his primary focus here is teaching the disciples. So on the way to Calvary, Jesus reminds the 12 of what's coming next. This is the second time. He says, look, guys, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to walk out of my own grave. And we see that today, and the disciples, they're so taken back by that, that they fail to hear it once again. And instead of asking Jesus to explain further what's going on, they take their eyes off Jesus, they put their eyes back on themselves, and by focusing on themselves, the inevitable happens. Guess what? They start to get into yet another argument. What's the problem today, you ask? (laughs) Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's word. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee. But he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they didn't understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does, does not welcome me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. Because there's no one who is going to perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, he will never lose his reward. And these are the very words from God for us this morning. Please pray with me. So, Father in heaven, we do come to you. Uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And today, you are going to teach us about humility and about humiliation. You're going to teach us about the devastating impact of pride. So Lord, we pray that you do in, indeed teach us and show us how to apply these things in our life this week. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. So Jesus and the 12, they're leaving Gentile territory, Caesarea Philippi here. They're headed back down south to the ministry headquarters in Galilee. Jesus is trying to keep a low profile. His public ministry is over Um, basically, Jesus has about six months left before Calvary. Verse 31, he was teaching his disciples and telling them. So the teaching, the teaching, the teaching of the disciples, that's the main focus here. And he says this, he says, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Luke's gospel gives us some more detail here evidently right after Jesus cast out the demon from that man last uh, that young man last week Luke says this in Luke chapter 9 verse 43 and they were all astonished so the they is the crowd they were all astonished at the greatness of God while everyone was amazed at all things uh, that Jesus was doing he told the disciples this he says let these words sink in, guys. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Notice the play on words there. The Son of Man and the hands of men. All three synoptic gospel writers use that, that word play there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, we do have some Old Testament imagery. King David was a, a man after God's own heart but he was also an imperfect man and flawed man. He sinned greatly during his lifetime. And one of David's greater sins took place by taking a census in in Israel. We read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 24, and in verse 14, David said to Gad, Gad is a prophet, David says, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but don't don't you dare let me fall into the hands of man. Jesus uses this phrase at the garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14 verse 41. He says, Jesus came a third time, he said to the disciples, are you guys still sleeping? Are you still resting? All right, that's enough. The time has come. See the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So back to our verse here today verse 31, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Your translation may say handed over or delivered up or turned over into the hands of men. The idea here in verse 31 is this, is that there is a certainty of what's going to happen in the future. Jesus is absolutely positively certain. He knows that he knows that he knows. That this betrayal into the hands of men will take place. Now, how can Jesus be so confident? You say, Well, Dustin, he's the, son of, he's the son of God, he's the son of man, he's the Messiah, he is God. Yes, you would be correct. He knows that he's there to fulfill prophecy. And although the betrayal is still in the future, it's it's as if it's already taken place. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Jesus was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, so he was handed over, he was delivered, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, Jesus did not open his mouth. So this concept of being delivered up is is used in a legal sense here. It's a legal term. So in other words, Jesus is being handed over into the hands of men for the sole purpose of judgment and punishment for their sin. And we see this in Scripture, don't we? We see this through the elders and the chief priest and the scribes. They handed Jesus over. Um, mankind most definitely is, is guilty of murdering Jesus. Um, we look at Judas. We look at Pilate. We look at... Um, the whole nation of Israel. But I want to show you this in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. Peter is preaching after Pentecost here, and right after the the Holy Spirit arrives and the disciples they start speaking in tongues and they start preaching the mighty works of almighty almighty God in various different languages. After this, verse 23, Peter says this, this man, this Jesus was handed over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of Almighty God. And by the way, you executed him by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, you guys had the Romans do your dirty work. So don't miss this. Jesus was not only handed over by his own people, that's the Jews, Jesus was not only betrayed by one of the 12 disciples, one of his closest friends, Judas. Jesus was not only murdered by the hands of Gentiles, the Romans, but Scripture tells us that this was all predetermined by the hand of Almighty God. God the Father, who set this plan in motion, mankind more than willing to carry it out, because humans love darkness more than the light. So this terminology of being handed over or betrayed in verse 31, in theology it's called a divine passive, meaning it refers to God without using God's name. So in other words, Jesus' betrayal here was God the Father's predetermined plan from the very beginning. Right now Genesis 3.15, So God the Father, He took the initiative in providing man's salvation after Adam and Eve sinned. God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, He willingly and He lovingly submitted to God the Father's plan and His will for the salvation of all of us. Please note that God's will and His predetermined plan do not absolve or vindicate or release the Jews nor Judas, nor Pilate, and the rest of mankind of its responsibility for murdering the second person of the Trinity. So back to verse 31, Jesus is teaching his disciples, he tells them the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed he will rise three days later, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. So the the 12 don't know what Jesus is talking about here, and really they don't want to know. Have you guys ever been there? Someone's talking about something, and the story just gets worse and worse and worse. You're like, "Ah, la, 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 (laughs) la. Stop. I don't want to hear it. I think the 12 were really afraid to hear what was going, not only to happen to Jesus, but what was getting ready to happen to them. Um, Remember the last time Peter steps up, he disagrees with Jesus. Jesus calls him Satan. It's always a bad day when the second person of the Trinity calls you the prince of demons. It's a bad day. But one of the questions that the the disciples had to be asking themselves is, all right, if Jesus dies, who's going to raise him? Because the the twelve, they've seen Jesus raise people from the dead, but it's a whole other story when he's the one that's dead. Wouldn't you have that question? That's a question I would have. So verse 33, so they came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, he says, what were you guys arguing about on the way? So the twelve, they get into another argument among themselves here. Now, if the timing of this argument weren't so tragic, it would be, it'd be comical. Because Jesus just disclosed to his closest friends that he's walking to his death. And the 12, they don't say a word about that. And now all of a sudden, they start to jockey for position inside the kingdom of God. Now, isn't that a bit weird? What kind of conversation is this? I mean, we may not have conversations like that among us, like who's the greatest, who's got the most talent, but we sure do think it, don't we? That was a great place for an amen. amen. If you can't say amen, you better say ouch. <laughs> you guys leave me up here a lot, just hanging. So let's review about how many times the disciples have argued here. They argued about who was responsible for the food in Mark chapter 8, verse 16. They just finished arguing with the scribes because they couldn't cast out a demon by themselves in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. Um, we're going to see them argue with a successful exorcist here in just a minute in verse 38. The 12, they argue with a woman who pours perfume on Jesus' feet. Mark chapter 14 verse 4. And then Peter is still bragging that he's going to outdo everybody else at the Last Supper in Mark chapter 14 verse 29. I mean, these guys argue a lot. So back to verse 33. So when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys arguing about on the way? Verse 34. But they were silent. Because on the way, they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Now, the 12, they take a lot of heat here from us as the church in the 21st century because we've got a bigger perspective of the whole narrative. We, we know what's going on. But I, I really think, guys, that the disciples are just like us. They have a lot of questions. They have a lot of, of things to say about minor matters. They've got a lot to say about worldly things. But when Jesus asked them what they were arguing about, he silences them. As well as they should be, right? They were reveling in the sin of pride. So the question becomes, how did they get there? What brought this conversation on? I'm guessing it was the trip up to Mount Hermon when Jesus chose Peter, James, and John to come alongside. The other nine had to stay. They had to minister to the people. Now, is that fair? Is that fair? No. No, right? Oh, sure, Jesus gets to take the teacher's pets on a field trip. Uh huh, I see how this is. So, as they're walking, can't you just picture the other nine disciples going, Hey guys, what happened up there? What happened? Peter, James, and John, they were sworn to silence, but can't you just picture them egging the others on? John saying, Well, you know, I can't tell you, it's top secret. Peter joins in, if I tell you, I'd have to kill you. This idea of position and order and rank is very, very important to the Jews. This conversation proves it. This verse, it gives us a picture also that Peter is not the one in charge. Everybody's kind of jockeying for that number one spot. And this is going to continue, they're going to keep continuing to to talk about this all the way Unto the the night before Jesus' death. And we see here that this this attitude of prestige is just so dangerous. And really, at the end of the day, we could sum up the conversation in one word, and that word is pride. So, key point number one for us today there is never unity among proud people, there is never unity among proud people. And we see that time and time again, not only here, but throughout the scriptures. So what Jesus does, he sees a teachable moment. And in verse 35, sitting down, he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and he must be a servant of all. So Jesus sits down, he prepares the disciples for a formal teaching lesson. He says, All right, guys, it's time for a family meeting. Because what he has to say to them is very important. If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. So, with this statement, Jesus turns the values, all of our values, on its head. And Jesus, he's really good at this. If you want to live, you got to die. If you want to be perfect, go sell everything, give it to the poor. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. If you want to be great, you have to suffer. He, he was first, got to be last. Last, you're going to be first. So I think the 12 are, are hearing this, and they respond the same way that we do. Well, what? Well, no, I, I don't like that. We start to whine. Eh, I don't like it, Jesus. I want to be first. You guys are leaving me up here again. No human links greatness with service, right? No, no human associates greatness with being a servant. Greatness is power. It is. It is money, and it is winning. And we we hear stuff like this all the time. You know, there's no such thing as second place. Second place is, is the first loser. We hear that kind of stuff all the time. I was, I was talking to a director of a halfway house in Phoenix a long time ago, and I remember him saying something like this. Yeah, I've got to keep these beds full so we can beat the shelter down the street. Everybody wants to win. Now, what he was trying to win, I have no idea, but it sets us up for key point number two really well. Key point number two, leadership is serving people, not using people. Leadership is serving people. It is not using people. And guys, here's the, here's the irony with pride. It keeps us receiving from receiving the very thing that we want. See, when proud people promote themselves and they do not repent, what happens? Their lies often end tragically. We see this all the time. We see it on the news. We see it in the church. We see it everywhere. So key point number three. If we don't choose humility, God chooses humiliation. Humiliation. If we don't choose humility, God chooses humiliation. The reason that God doesn't zap you like a bug after you sin is because of his grace. He loves you, and he wants you to repent on your own. But, dear friend, if you choose not to repent, God will discipline you through his love And he will even humiliate you to get your attention. And if that doesn't work, he will take you out. He will bring you home because God will not allow a child, one of his children, to embarrass him and shame his his holy name over and over and over again. So Jesus redefines success in verse 35 because success in God's eyes demands humility. And to illustrate this point, in verse 36, Jesus took a child and had him stand among them. And then taking him in his arms, Jesus said, so let's pause for a minute. All eyes are on this little child. Jesus chose to raise this child and honor him in front of the 12. He did what the 12 were jockeying for. Verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name, he welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So in first century Israel, babies and children, they were considered insignificant. And the reason for the insignificance was because the mortality rate was just so high. Children were not prized. In Jewish society, they were tolerated. So in other words, Jesus did not give the 12 a pecking order like they wanted. Jesus didn't say, all right, listen up, guys. Peter, I guess you're number one. Um, James and John, you're two and three. Uh, Judas, you are last. No doubt about that. Jesus chooses a child to raise this, this this boy into a position of temporary honor, and yet the child hasn't done anything. This kid can't feed himself, he can't dress himself, and yet the disciples are great in God's eyes if they serve this child. Uh, rabbis, they, they didn't even waste their time with children under the age of 12. They did not teach them. So what's really interesting here in verse 37 is that Jesus chose The one word in Aramaic that means the same thing. It means child and servant. It's one and the same. Notice here in verse 37 that Jesus did not command his disciples to become like children, but to welcome those who are like a little child. So Jesus' lesson is obvious here. The disciples were not to consider themselves great. They needed to work on humility. Before Jesus humiliated them, Jesus says this He says, Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So here we have a a pretty heavy dose of theology. Jesus says, It's impossible for someone to know God the Father and not know me, God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is the gate, He is the door to God the Father. Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Now in verse 38, there's a what seems to be an awkward transition here, but stay with me. Let's, let's see what John does. John, John interrupts Jesus' teaching here. He says, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Uh-oh. So it looks like John's feeling pretty guilty here. He's now wondering if if they did the right thing. Notice John's, his word choice. He doesn't say I, he says we. Teacher, we, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. So John is speaking for all the disciples, but the question becomes, wait a second, why is he feeling so guilty? Hindsight's always 20 What irked the disciples about this exorcist was not only that he was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but more importantly, he was successful at it. He was good at it. This man, obviously a believer in Jesus, but the disciples, they were irritated with this man because he was having success where they failed last week. Remember? I mean, how dare this man do that? How dare this man free people from the bondage of Satan? Who does this guy think he is? He doesn't have apostolic authority like us. Notice how John told this story to Jesus. He says this, and this is key. He says, he wasn't following us. Oops. Was that a slip of the tongue? Shouldn't John have said he wasn't following us? you, Jesus. Jesus responds, he says, guys, don't stop him because there is no one who's going to perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterward speak evil of me. Notice the phrase in my name there. The 12 understood this phrase as a royal, as a kingly sense. In my name, it means with my authority, I'm going to send you in my place. So for, an, for example, a king who commands one of his servants to do something in his name gives the, serv- the servant, number one, a set of instructions, and number two, the authority to carry those instructions out. So the twelve, they obviously thought that since Jesus had given them the authority to cast out the demons, that no one else should have received this kind of a authority or even a commission, So Jesus surprised them there. He basically told the 12 to stop it. Just stop it. Jesus rebukes them. He also provides directions for the future when it happens again. So Jesus is correcting their theology. He's also correcting their attitude. And, you know, at the end of the day, Jesus is saying this. Look, guys, just because he's not a part of your apostolic club doesn't mean that he's not allowed to do the same thing that you're doing. The casting out of demons is done in God's power. And it's God's power working through you. And it's not limited to the 12. And we see other examples of this, especially in the book of Acts. So, casting out demons clearly demonstrates that this man was not against Jesus. And Jesus continues here in verse 40 For whoever is not against us is for us. So, this is a proverb. And at first glance, it seems to be a little bit excessive. Shouldn't there be some some type of middle ground there? Shouldn't there be a little bit of gray area? We all like the gray, don't we? Jesus is saying, look, this, this man is not your enemy. Quite the opposite. He's your brother. He's your friend. You guys are on the same team. And in verse 41... Jesus continues now and he says, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So in other words, the most, one of the most humble things you can do, give somebody a cup of cold water, it does not go unnoticed by God. God will reward you for that. So what does all this mean for us today today? Well, it's a good thing none of us in here struggle with pride. Thank you. I think the the first takeaway, in all seriousness, is that for us this morning to confess our sin on a daily basis, because that keeps us humble. And if we're just a little bit honest with ourselves, if we're just a little bit honest with God, we're, we're going to admit that we are absolutely consumed with our wants and with our desires and with our plans. If we're just a little bit honest with ourselves, we'll confess that we are absolutely addicted to ourself and to our own comfort level. It's the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, me, myself, and I of mankind. And dear friends, we need to confess this as sin on a daily basis. The second takeaway from this text is a reminder that Christ's church has many different people with many different gifts and beliefs. The apostles didn't see that at first. They saw someone who was different. They didn't do, they didn't do whatever he was doing the same way. So Christ's church is diverse, and diversity brings unity. Diversity brings unity. Scripture teaches that. Now, we, we're a divided country. We don't see that. Unfortunately, we, we've got some divided churches as well. But we, I think we, we must embrace not only our immediate family here at River, but also our Father in Heaven desperately wants us to, to love on our extended family. The other churches in town that are Christ-centered and Holy Spirit-filled and and Bible-believing, and yet they hold on to some minor doctrinal uh, and theological differences from ours. But regardless, guys, we've got one Father, we've got one Savior, and we've got one Spirit for the purpose of unity. And this, this makes every local church stronger. We have so much to learn from one another. We have so much to learn from our charismatic friends. We have so much to learn from our conservative brothers and sisters in Christ. And even when we listen and we, we have a great conversation and we agree to disagree, we do become more healthy. The body of Christ becomes more healthy. And when the body of Christ becomes healthy, the body of Christ grows. I think our third takeaway here deals with our personal relationships and the sin of pride once again. Please know that pride, if you haven't already experienced this, will burn down everything in your life. For those of you who are married, I want to share with you that out of all the years of pastoral counseling, I've never had a husband and wife come to me and they say, all right, Dustin, we're we're going to get a divorce. There we go again. All right, why why do you want a divorce? Well, because we just can't stop serving one another. We can't stop thanking God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can't stop submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5.20. That has never happened, and it will never happen, because that's a strong, healthy marriage. It's amazing to me when when people want to discuss the roles, especially in in the marriage relationship there in Ephesians 5.20, that they go, they, they start to argue about uh, the man saying, well, my, my wife should submit to me. And, and the wife will say, well, if you were more godly, I would submit to you. And they, they miss the very first part of this. Ephesians 5.20 will change your life. It will change your marriage. It will change your relationship with your employer, with your friends. Because if you're submitting to another person out of reverence for Christ... You can't go wrong. I think many, many times we miss the simplicity of of how to live this life, and Jesus shows us the way. He shows us that there is a way of humility, there is a way of service, and there is a way of suffering. Jesus preached it, and not he, he didn't just preach it. He lived it. And we, as his disciples, as his followers, we are to do the same. If you have any questions about Jesus, if you have any questions about the gospel, um, any questions on humility or pride or humiliation, we have a prayer room through the foyer to the back, and we want to make sure that you get your spiritual questions answered. So, Father in heaven, we are, we are a grateful people. We can't thank you enough for sending the Lord Jesus to live a perfect life, and to die a substitutionary death. We can't thank you enough that our sins have been transferred to the cross, to the shoulders of Jesus himself, and that his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness has been transferred to us, and that we have the unbelievable privilege now as your adopted children that you see us as holy and pure and blameless, that we can run into the the throne room of God and we can do that boldly and we can cry out, Papa, Abba, Father, what are we going to do today? Daddy, what do we get to do today with you? Lord, thank you. We swim in an ocean of grace today. And I pray, Lord God, that Today's lesson is a reminder of how good you are to us, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.